Britain woke up to an image none of us wanted to see. It was Matt Hancock snogging one of his COVID advisors. Now, the woman in the photo is Gina Colodangelo, an old friend of Matt Hancock and a PR firm director. She was brought in by the health secretary as an unpaid advisor at the start of the pandemic, though in September last year, she got a paid role in the department. That was as a non-executive director at the Department of Health. One issue that's relevant when it comes to this image, who's in it? The other is when it was taken. So the photo revealed on the sun was taken on the 6th of May this year. Back then, government advice was still that hugging anyone outside of a household bubble was not allowed. That means that Matt Hancock broke his own rules, which today he admitted to in a statement. He said, I accept that I breached the social distancing guidance in these circumstances. I have let people down and am very sorry. I remain focused on working to get the country out of this pandemic and would be grateful for privacy for my family on this personal matter. The Prime Minister has since accepted Matt Hancock's apology and a spokesperson has said he considers the matter closed. Now, whether or not the public will agree is a different matter. We will talk about that more on tonight's show. First, we're going to go to one of the few Tories who appeared to talk about um, this issue today on the television. Obviously, I don't think anyone was particularly keen to go out and defend Matt Hancock, but Transport Minister Grant Shapps was already booked into this morning's media round. I think there has been for a long time a complete difference between you know what people do uh, in their in their job and how they do their their job, which is what everybody should be judged for, and what they do in their personal lives. And I have no intention of commenting on on any other colleagues or anyone else's um, personal life. That that's uh, that's for them and and uh, and and their and themselves. The paper is saying that this happened in May. This was at a time when Matt Hancock himself, as a health secretary, was publicising government advice on hugging. He's saying if you're meeting with friends and family, you can make a choice about whether to keep your distance, but close contact, including hugging, increases the risk of spreading COVID-19. Well, as, as I say, I can only I can only stress the point. I, I think people's what, what happens in people's personal lives and personal relationships uh, is a, a matter uh, for them, and uh, and I don't intend to sort of go into commenting uh, on it. Matt Hancock was said to have secretly appointed hers to his department as an unpaid advisor on a six month contract in March last year, which uh, meant there are claims criticisms of a chumocracy. Well, the, the, I, I'm, I'm not aware of that. The only thing I know is that um, if you are appointed to uh, a government position, I think in this case it's a non-executive director uh, position. Well, that's her job the, now, not the not the original job, not the original. Right. Job. As, as I say, uh, the only thing I can tell you is from my own experience in in government, which is there are very rigorous uh, programs in place when people are appointed, which requires all sorts of civil service. Uh, sign off uh, before uh, public money is, is spent. And uh, that's the situation that I'm, I'm sure will be followed in, uh, in a position like this. So Grant Shapps are responding, I suppose, to, to three big issues, which are the ones raised um, by that image. So one is just the issue of a politician having an affair. Does that suggest some sort of moral impropriety? Obviously, the politician's line here is that this is a personal issue. I think that probably will wash with most people. More significantly, the question of hypocrisy. Did they break social distancing rules? There in that clip, you saw Grant Shapps say that's still a personal issue. 
Um, he doesn't think that's a political issue, even though Matt Hancock was the person who wrote up and promoted those rules. And the third issue um, is whether or not there was a conflict of interest because Matt Hancock was having an affair with someone being paid by public money whom he had personally appointed. Now, in response to that, Grant Chap said, look, um, even if it looks dodgy, the civil service, they have processes here. I'm sure all of those proper processes were followed. So there's nothing to see here. That was his way of shutting down that question. We'll have loads more detail on both of those two big issues um, throughout this show. First of all, Aaron, what's your initial take here? Do you think the revelation about Matt Hancock snogging his aide is going to be politically significant? Could be. I mean, if you think about what, what was the one time that Boris Johnson and this government were really on the ropes, and that's a remarkable thing to say, it was only once, given we've had three waves of a pandemic where 130,000 people have died. It was, of course, the Dominic Cummings saga. And that wasn't just because he did something morally wrong. And of course, you know, cheating on your spouse when you have three children with them is morally wrong. It was because it was hypocritical. And we spoke about this at the time, Michael. You know, we, we both agreed that it was very, very, very bad for the government, precisely because hypocrisy just goes down so poorly with, with the electorate. Um, you know, sleaze, it, it seems to be okay these days. And we think of all the, the many scandals that have surrounded the, the Boris Johnson premiership, that one didn't have it because like, like say, hypocrisy really, really goes a long way. And it's a personal story. You know, Dominic Cummings is a memorable person. He was a big personality. He was telling people to do something he wouldn't do himself. It's the exact same story here with Matt Hancock. So you would suggest from that, the government has to deal with it. He probably, he has to go. Whether it's a sacking or a resignation, he, he probably won't stick around. But then again, you know, the key question is, when it was Cummings, there was a lot of political pressure, not just from the Labour Party. It was actually the one time that Labour called for a resignation until today, but also from the media. Uh, you know, will, will, will there be that same uh, sort of bunch of piranhas nibbling away at the, at the, the number 10 Downing Street press operation saying he needs to go, this isn't acceptable? We, we don't know. We don't know what the political weather on this is going to be. There's a by-election a week. We're going to talk about that later. It could be that the, the sort of political weather changes quite quickly. I'm not saying it's as bad as Dominic Cummings. I think that was clearly worse uh, just because Dominic Cummings is such a larger-than-life character. But Matt Hancock does have big big name recognition, Secretary of State for Health, and he's been a hypocrite. Big problems for the government. Mm, I suppose I'd probably add, you know, what the coming situation had was both hypocrisy, but it was hypocrisy on an issue that people really, really cared about. So obviously, I think you could probably find lots of examples of, of hypocrisy on the part of, of Boris Johnson. But if it's not about something that people don't really care about, like wallpaper, you know, I'm sure he's said along like down the line that he cares about corruption, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, people care about it if it is an issue they care about. When it came to Dominic Cummings, people were like, I have missed really important life events. I have really missed, you know, key members of my family and friends. And now this guy who's told us to do all of this broke all of that. This time around, probably Matt Hancock would be hoping, and we're going to show you what the public do think in a moment, would be hoping that his get out could be that at that point, the lockdown was significantly relaxed. Anyway, we could do quite a lot of things other than hug. So it, it might not be quite as visceral, I suppose, as the, the public reaction to Dominic Cummings. Um, let's go to some of the political responses. As you say, Labour have called for him to resign. This is a statement from the chair of the Labour Party, Annalisa Dodds. She said, 
If Matt Hancock has been secretly having a relationship with an advisor in his office whom he personally appointed to a taxpayer-funded role, it is a blatant abuse of power and a clear conflict of interest. The charge seat against Matt Hancock includes wasting taxpayers' money, leaving care homes exposed, and now being accused of breaking his own COVID rules. His position is hopelessly untenable. Boris Johnson should sack him. The public this time around are on Labour's side. Um, YouGov asked asked people today, asked the public today, in his role as health secretary, Matt Hancock should um, and resign uh, was agreed with by 49% of people. So 49% of people said he should resign. Only 25% said he should remain. And significantly here are the changes. So the last time people were asked was on the 27th of May. That was because of the allegations put forward by Dominic Cummings about lying, about testing, going into care homes. Back then, it was pretty even. Um, so you had 33 uh, or 36 and 31, 36 saying resign, 31 saying remain. You know, that was pretty, it, there was no clear cut uh, position there from the public. Now there very much is. There was also a poll from Comres, which showed the majority being even larger for people thinking Matt Hancock should resign. So here, 58% of people thought he should resign versus 25% of people who thought he shouldn't. There may, though, be one silver lining for Matt Hancock in the polling today. That's because almost half of Britons say that Boris Johnson would be a hypocrite if he were to ask Matt Hancock to resign, given accusations of his own infidelity. So you can see there, among all voters, 47% of people think he would be a hypocrite if he asked Matt Hancock to resign. Only 35% thought he would not be. And you can see there's a majority saying Boris Johnson would be a hypocrite among Conservative and Labour voters and men and women. So there's a bit of a, a catch-22 for anyone who wants Matt Hancock to resign, which is that the public want him to resign, but the only person who can force him to do it has, a, I suppose, an interest in not doing it because he doesn't want to look like a hypocrite. On hypocrisy, as we've said, Matt Hancock was breaking the rules by snogging his aide, as it happened at the start of May, where hugging people, unless they were in your household bubble, was banned. Now, we can presume um, this woman wasn't in his household bubble because she would have to have shared that with Matt Hancock's wife, which would have been awkward, unless it's a particularly modern relationship. Now, I'm personally fairly inclined to be relaxed about people breaking the rules if it's within reason. Um, I'm not one to say, oh, I can't believe you kissed someone in May when you weren't supposed to hug people. But I did read a persuasive article in the New Statesman as to why we should care when it comes to Matt Hancock. It was written by Rachel Cunliffe, um, and she wrote, England's lockdown rules have amounted to a de facto sex ban for millions of people who do not live with a partner and aren't eligible to form a bubble. From the 23rd of March 2020, when lockdown was first imposed until the 17th of May 2021, there were just a few months when intimacy between non-cohabiting adults was legal. As Health Secretary Hancock was directly responsible for this peculiarly English state of affairs, other countries made specific exemptions to their COVID restrictions for romantic partners, but the UK government refused to acknowledge that single people existed and might have a right to physical affection. She also pointed out in the piece that Hancock has repeatedly been asked about the plight of separated couples during the pandemic, and each time has emphatically come down on the side of abstinence. Now, we can jog your memory about some of those 
occasions where Matt Hancock has come down on the side of abstinence when asked what people in non-cohabiting couples, so couples who don't live together, what they should do, or people who aren't in a serious relationship. The, the rules changed, as will be apparent from, from the clips I'm about to show you. So this interview is from September. Back then, um, Matt Hancock said people should stick to the letter of the rules, which at that point in time was that you could only get intimate with people with whom you were in an established relationship. How long is this casual sex ban going to last? You're saying that no social distancing needed in established relationships. What about people who are not in an established relationship? Why am I whispering? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You're, you're live on national TV. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Um, the, um, uh, look, there are... <laughs> it's okay to smile. In these, in these rules that we have to bring in, you have to have... Uh, there have to be boundaries, to coin a, to coin a phrase. That we have to... If you're saying that the that two households shouldn't mix, which we are in some parts of the country, uh, in the northeast, the northwest, in Scotland, in parts of Wales, uh, then you you have to then define what is the boundary know, of that, is, and that does boundary? lead to some. That's my question. That does I mean, lead you know, to established relationship. Does that mean right. if I say I love you, because some people say that and they don't mean it? But are you in an established relationship then? I don't know. I think I think we should stick to the. Uh, the, the letter of it, which is that uh, it's, it's okay in an established relationship. And what does that I think mean to I'm you? To, what it, I mean, I know what it means to you and Mrs. Hancock. But uh, that that was exactly how I was going to answer. <laughs> yeah. be, I know that I'm in an established relationship. Okay. What about other people watching this morning? What, how would you define an established relationship? I think people, what it, it just means that people need to be careful, right? People need to be sensible. And if you're in a relationship that is uh, that is well established. You know, that's, that's what that it like means. like six months? What it means is pe not uh, people be realizing that by, when you've had by, by coming into close contact with people Twice? in other households, then that is how the virus spreads. That was obviously a very cringeworthy interview. You can see why people, um, single people, people not in established relationships would be pretty annoyed watching that. He's essentially saying, if you're not in an established relationship, I've got no answers for you. And also, by the way, yeah, I'm married, so it's fine for me. I don't even have to ask this question about myself. Obviously, if there, this interview was, was redone now, they'd be asked how many established relationships is one allowed to have we're not sure um how long matt hancock's affair was going on obviously that picture's from may we don't know if it went back to september um but clearly that interview would have gone very different if it had happened now now as i say the context there was people had been allowed to get together with people who were in established relationships that was more relaxed um, than in the first lockdown where you couldn't get with anyone unless you actually lived with them um, later during the winter lockdown that changed again though they tightened the restrictions and took away um, that clause whereby if you were in an established relationship you could get with someone so it went basically back to you can only have intimate relations if you live with a person. In February this year, a member of the public asked Matt Hancock about that decision. Why has the government removed guidance from last summer, allowing couples in established relationships not to socially distance from each other? And what would stop support bubbles being extended to allow couples to see each other again without limits on social contact? Well, thanks, Hannah. Uh, the, we, took the, we made the change that we did um, to uh, because as we went into the lockdown over the uh, autumn uh, in November and then again at the start of uh, January, we wanted to make sure that we did everything we possibly could to stop this from spreading. 
Um, and I'm absolutely um, sure that the actions that everybody has taken and the sacrifices that people have made have had that very, very positive impact. Um, we do look, of course, at the uh, support bubbles. We hold these uh, all these rules under review. Um, but the purpose of the support bubbles is that, so that people living on their own uh, can socialize uh, because we know just how difficult it is to live on your own uh, if you have uh, no contact at all. So that's the reason for, for that support bubble. So again there, Matt Hancock was fairly dismissive about um, this this young woman asking him, when is this going to change? What if I want to get with someone who I don't live with? He said, well, look, we, we're only um, saying you can break these rules um, the social distancing rules, if you're in a bubble because you live on your own, essentially he's saying, look, you can only move alongside the rules or get this opt-out if you're in a really desperate situation, which is that you live alone. He's saying, if you if you live with friends, then I'm sorry, I've got nothing for you. Clearly, what he's done here makes it seem as if he wasn't willing to make similar sacrifices. We have one more clip for you to show Matt Hancock's hypocrisy. And this is actually probably the most significant one because there is here, actually, I suppose, the exact... Um, mirror image of what's happened today, which is there was someone who was responsible for lockdown rules or who shared responsibility for lockdown rules. This time it was Neil Ferguson, a top epidemiologist who sits on SAGE, as you'll probably remember. In May 2020, he had to stand down because he had invited over a lover to his house. That was, of course, during the first lockdown when it was banned. Let's take a look at how Matt Hancock responded at the time. It's extraordinary. And, um, you know, I, th I, I, I don't understand. I'm speechless. I, I am. I, that doesn't often happen to me, Kay. I know. <laughs> and, um, but I am. I, I, I am. And, you know, uh, Mr. Ferguson is a, Professor Ferguson is a, is a very, very eminent and impressive scientist. Uh, and um, his, the science that he's done has been an important part of what we've listened to. Uh, and um, I think that it's a, uh, uh, yeah, I think that he took the right decision. You, you wouldn't have. To uh, resign. That yeah, is. You, you wouldn't have thought to keep him. It's just not, that's just not possible in these circumstances. The weight of evidence there that Matt Hancock wouldn't have thought his own actions were acceptable and spoke as if he would be rather judgmental if someone had behaved in the way he had done. It does seem on the hypocrisy grounds, he doesn't have a, a leg to stand on whatsoever, does he? Not in the slightest. You know, if Labour were on top of social media, Michael, which of course they're not, but you know, things can change. This evening, they would put 20 grand behind Facebook ads talking about Matt Hancock and showing that clip because it's just, it's just deceptive. I mean, to be doing it in real time, it's one thing to, to say it and then he breaks the rules. I mean, we, we don't know the full facts, but it, it, it appears that this has been a, a relatively longer relationship. We have to, we have to obviously get on top of that. If that is the case, and I, he, he really just looks like an utterly duplicitous rat. You know, in more, in more ways than one, because what was going on with the other liaison with uh, Neil Ferguson was ultimately, a, you know, a, a relatively harmless relationship between two consenting adults. This was too, but look, there's a wife and three children involved. And by the way, they found out about it through the Sun newspaper. So, it, I mean, it's just really, really poor. And, uh, you know, going back as well, Michael, to what we were saying earlier, that, you know, private lives don't matter and so on and so forth. I do feel that when there are children involved, people don't necessarily buy that as much. And there are three kids involved. I mean, they're, they're young adults, they're teenagers, but still, um, I think I think he 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 is in trouble. I've, I've already said it. I think he's either going to resign or be pushed out. 
if you have a wife and kids, then secretly cheating on the wife is not necessarily a victimless thing to do. But at the same time, we don't normally see it as a red line whereby you can't be in public office if you've done that because we recognise no. that lots of people are fallible and these things happen, right? So that so that's why I'm not saying we don't I just care yeah, I just about infidelity as if it doesn't have any consequences, yeah. but that I don't think we'd be calling for Matt Hancock to resign if he'd just had an affair with someone who no. had nothing to do with government and he hadn't broken any rules. Let me qualify it. So two things. I'm just saying it's qualitatively different to what happened with Neil Ferguson. I think that's just... That, and obviously, people are going to try and draw an equivalence between these two, justifiably, but I think this is worse. Secondly, no, I agree with you. I personally wouldn't. But I can see why a conservative voter would say, I'm not voting for somebody because they, that's what they did to their three children, their, their wife or husband. I can see why somebody would think that. But they've already voted for Boris Johnson, so presumably it's not a red well, of course. Item. No, no, I, yeah, we're just observers here, and you're absolutely right. No, the, all the evidence is out. Look at Farage, look at Boris Johnson. The, you know, actually personal personal behavior in these areas it doesn't seem particularly doesn't seem a game changer anymore like it used to maybe with the perfumer affair for instance in the 1960s i have seen lots of people say you know if this is the thing that forces matt hancock to resign after everything he's done prior to this you know what does that say i mean at the same time i think what you've got here is a story that people find very easy to understand that's why you know the dominic cummings story was as aaron bastani said the the moment where the government were weakest because lots of the other failures are quite difficult to understand. Also, at the start of the pandemic, some of them did seem understandable, at least. There were loads of people fucking up at the same time, as as we say repeatedly on the show. For me, it's what happened between September and December by Boris Johnson, personally, in terms of ignoring the scientists, etc., which is completely unforgivable. I do think it is a disgrace. He hasn't been made to pay for that. Let's go on to the conflict of interest question. This is the other big problem which Matt Hancock's kiss on camera poses. Um, and for this section, we can go actually back to a Sunday Times report from November, because even before this image of the snog came out, there were concerns arising over the appointment of Colladangelo. And this is because she was appointed and she was already Matt Hancock's very, very close friend. So they refer to Colladangelo in the interview, in the article, sorry, as Hancock's closest friend from university. They also report that in March, Hancock secretly appointed her as an unpaid advisor at the Department of Health and Social Care on a six-month contract. She accompanied Hancock 42 to confidential meetings with civil servants and visited number 10 Downing Street. Now, here, what the government always said, oh, these are unpaid advisors. It doesn't matter. There's no questions of corruption here because it's not public money. Why that doesn't really stand up is because these were people who had enormous, extraordinary access to decision makers at the top of government. And it was often done in a very untransparent way. This obviously leads to many suspicions about conflicts of interest. And here, the Sunday Times also, um, I suppose, raised reasons for suspicions or doubts about the appropriateness of this particular hire. So the Sunday Times reported that Lufa Pendragon, so that's the lobbying firm um, in which Colladangelo is a director, boasts clients who have secured lucrative contracts during the pandemic, including British Airways, who got £70 million, and Accenture, which received £2.5 million to help build the COVID-19 app. So we've seen this time and time again. This is someone who is at the top of government. Now, we're not in a position to say whether that decision was corrupt, but it obviously raises many a question. As I've already said as well, her initial role was unpaid. It didn't stay 
unpaid. So Colodangelo um, later in the year was appointed to a different role. The Times report in September, Hancock appointed Colodangelo as a non-executive director at the Department of Health, meaning that she is a member of the board that scrutinizes the department. There is no public record of the appointment, which will see her earn at least £15,000 of taxpayers' money and which could rise by a further £5,000. Now, for me, the part that strikes out there isn't so much the £15,000 that she's going to get paid because these are very rich people. You know, I kind of feel like those, I mean, even, even if that's a very significant amount of money to me or you, I feel like to these people, 15 grand, how big a risk are they going to take for it? I'm not sure. The, the bit that really stands out for me here is that her job was to scrutinize Matt Hancock's department. So she was appointed by Matt Hancock to scrutinize Matt Hancock. So you've already got, you know, it shows a ridiculous way that our government functions, where you've got loads of people who appoint the people who are supposed to hold them accountable. But then also, you have this other layer, which is that the person who is supposed to hold Matt Hancock to account is seemingly in a relationship with Matt Hancock, in a secret relationship with Matt Hancock. The, the government have been able to basically escape much scrutiny when it comes to questions of corruption, even though there has been so many causes for concern. Do you think they'll be confident they can do the same thing again this time around? You know, going back to the Dominic Cummings thing, we've said that's the one time that the Tories were on the ropes in terms of poll ratings. And people said, oh, Stan was doing so well in August. I mean, he was doing quite well. He was doing okay. But what put Labour really high, that was that peak, was the Dominic Cummings kind of saga. I suppose that would be an argument that he could make. Actually, it was always time limited. But what are we looking at with that now? The downside is that actually Dominic Cummings, after being pushed out, had a great deal of dirt on Boris Johnson. I guess, again, I'd push the story a step further and say, yes, there's a lot of sleaze here, a lot of scandal, potentially, you know, com apparent conflicts of interest. But if you're the Tories and you're carrying on like that all the time, we have an example now where if you push somebody out because of that, they're actually a lot more damaging on the outside than they are on the inside. And, and you wonder the extent to which there is compromising information on Boris Johnson or, or, or other people in the government, uh, which Matt Hancock presently has. Now, normally, you, you wouldn't say that normally, right? Normally, when people run governments, there's a great deal of distance between various departments. The Prime Minister runs thing, 10 Downing Street is, you know, as a real, it has a lot of executive functions kind of centralised. But I think because of the nature of the, the, the crisis that they went through and the ad hoc nature of many of the responses, both for better and for worse, I, I do feel like probably Matt Hancock has a lot more leverage in this going forward than than we might suspect. Uh, and so, again, you know, I, I, it, it's really, really hard to say because the corruption thing is terrible, but, you know, that, that's what we know about. And so I suppose there's an element of damage limitation with the Tories. Do you, just, do you just carry on with that and take the hit or do you push the guy out precisely for that? And frankly, he's, he's, he's quite liable to talk about even more of it so I, I guess I've made an argument as for why they would get rid of him, make him resign or, or fire him. And I suppose that's not a sort of counter argument as to why they wouldn't do that. Uh, again, going back to the sort of the, the, the electorate's response to this stuff so far, it doesn't have, have much of an impact. That could change. You know, by 2024, we could be out of this crisis. This is what Labour obviously are banking on. I think it's a very dangerous thing to bank on, but it's not entirely uh, absurd. It makes sense. It's a plausible outcome. Uh, but right now, that, that doesn't seem to have the impact. But it's also important to say, Michael, we shouldn't just talk about these, these corruption stories as, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's not coming through in the polls. Because firstly, that's the job of journalists to translate these stories and, and, and transmit them to the public at large. And what really angers me is one of the first sort of lines you'll hear when this story comes out, whether it's, you know, BBC World at One or PM or 
whatever. It's almost always the BBC because they they try to think a level above, you know, the tabloids. And they'll say, well, will this cut through? You know, are, are people really paying attention? You know, uh, don't second guess what people are thinking. Just report the facts. But from what we know, people don't seem to care that much, particularly when you've got, what, 81, 82 percent of people now have had their first vaccine. You're having, you know, the number of countries people can travel to expanded, albeit very slowly. You're looking at a relatively good fit year for the UK economy compared to what was previously thought. So I, I think given all that, this kind of is a second order problem. I think the relentless focus on corruption by Labour probably won't be that productive in the short term. We'll see. We are going to finish the segment on that last issue you, you mentioned earlier, which is the provenance of this image. So the image is from CCTV footage from the Department of Health. Um, so it wasn't a paparazzi shot. Um, it was clearly leaked by someone, either a security guard or a security guard who'd been tipped off or a political opponent of Matt Hancock. We don't know. Some speculation from former Chief Prosecutor Nazir Afzal. He tweeted... <laughs> To think that the Prime Minister has thrown his health secretary, Matt Hancock, to the wolves for an affair and not his handling of the worst pandemic in a century. These are images from within his office, not paparazzi. You don't get them without high level access. Don't let them play us for fools. Um, so the suggestion there seems to be the means by which this image found its way to the front page of The Sun had, I mean, I think the implication here is that it had something to do with the Prime Minister. Um, presumably it could be another political enemy of Matt Hancock. The other option is it was just someone who was in the, you know, a, a security guard who watches cameras, etc., who took a picture of this and sold it to the Sun. The, the problem there is that how would they have happened to be watching that camera at that particular moment in time? I would have thought probably this was someone who who was tipped off to say, by the way, if you look at Matt Hancock's office, you might see something that is worth selling to the sun. Um, what's your position on this, Aaron? Well, I mean, obviously, I, I'm not expecting a concrete answer, but what, what do you think are the plausible um, scenarios here? Yeah, I think it's highly, I think it's highly likely that somebody's done this, obviously, to stir, you know, the proverbial shit. Um, you have to understand as well, the sort of closer you get to, 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 to the top of politics, you know, it is just factions galore. It is, people are, we want no factions. It's just factions. In Keir Starmer's office right now, there'll be people trying to undermine other people. You know, the, 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 the Ben Nunn story, for instance, that's probably somebody in the office releasing that to undermine him. You know, that was meant to go out a little bit later. So with Boris Johnson and the government, you have faction upon faction upon faction. Now, normally when things are going really well, if you're a political success story, that's kind of pushed down a little bit. Like with you know, the Blair Brown years, for a long time, what was a really ferocious rivalry and real animosity at times was kind of, was really kept down actually from really 97 until, really until 2005, even through the Iraq war. Um, and the question is, you, know, you have to be a very successful politician. Thatcher is another one, you know, uh, in order to not have those sharks circling. David Cameron, of course, famously had it with Boris Johnson and the vote leave kind of faction within within his. Uh, they weren't necessarily on the front bench a lot of the time. I mean, Michael Gove was, but there were, there were very powerful elements within the Conservative Party were trying to undermine him fundamentally, particularly over Brexit. That's why Boris Johnson went with vote leave. Uh and I think that's probably what's happening here. But again, like you say, you can't discount the possibility that, you know, it's some outsourced security staff worker or whatever. And they're saying, you know what, that's five grand, that's 10 grand. I mean, maybe. But the lesson of the last sort of 30, 40 years, if you, if anybody's sort of familiar with how the tabloids in this country operate, uh, 
the tabloids in this country have operated is generally speaking this stuff is placed by political rivals generally speaking because for the sun you know to keep that on record and that and again this is documented quite widely as to how the murdoch sort of press uses this stuff as as leverage and as a means of exerting influence over politicians and public figures etc they sort of dangle the sword and they say if you don't do this we're going to publish this if that hasn't happened which doesn't seem to have happened then I think it's about internal political rivalries and machinations, yes. The question is who? Uh, you know, again, with this kind of stuff, often people talk about, oh, it could be, the, the, it's not the deep state. I'm just saying when you get uh, published sort of CTTV, CCTV footage of a politician doing something they shouldn't be doing, that can be one sort of answer. I don't think it's anything like that this time. I think it's somebody close to Johnson. And of course, Harry Cole. Uh, Harry Cut Cole is the ex of... Uh, Boris Johnson's partner, the, the mother of his child. They're married now, my apologies, the Boris Johnson's wife. So it, it, it does seem it does seem like this is uh this is a very brutal political tactic by a rival. Could be wrong, but it seems that way. Well, this is very interesting. So uh, since we've been live, The Guardian have just published a story which says the government will not launch any inquiry into who leaked a photograph of Matt Hancock kissing an aide, even though they believe they know who did it. The Guardian understands. It says Downing Street and Hancock's Department of Health have decided not to instigate any hunt to try to identify who passed the image from a security camera in his ministerial office to the sun. So they think they know who it is, but they're still not going to investigate it. That's really remarkable because, look, uh, compromising material on senior government officials is, is like gold dust for, for foreign states historically or for particular interests, you know, if they're trying to get awarded government contracts and so on, you absolutely can't have that. You absolutely can't have that. That was the whole thing, again, going back to the perfumer affair in the 60s. It was seen as, oh, my God, this is jeopardizing national security because we have this powerful person who has actually made themselves vulnerable by these, you know, the, the, these private sexual exploitations. So a private, a private issue becomes a public scandal. I mean, that's a similar thing here. You know, you cannot allow your top people to be compromised like this and not look into it. That, that is absolutely outrageous. It, it means fundamentally, it looks like there's a quid pro quo between the leaker, the son, and the prime minister. That's how it looks, right? I mean, what other explanation do you have? And it would also well, indicate you won't resign. But. So reading, reading the rest of the article, what they're suggesting, so a source familiar with the decision, um, is that they don't want to do a leak inquiry, essentially because they think whoever leaked it would have grounds to position themselves as a whistleblower because they were revealing wrongdoing on the part of Matt Hancock. Um, so I suppose, you know, if, as you're saying, if it was just him having an affair, maybe outside of work with nothing to do with his, his, you know, if, if no rules are broken, maybe they would do an inquiry, but because they think he is in the wrong, they don't want to do that inquiry because this was wrongdoing being exposed. I imagine they just don't want the story to continue anymore because it's all quite embarrassing. Do you buy that at all? Well, it's not about buying it. I just think that, you know, you have to absolutely look into people who can compromise senior government officials. Because like, like I said, that could be an issue of national security. It could undermine, you know, democratically agreed on policy. You, you can't have that. You cannot have that, Michael. You cannot have that. This is a really, really, really big step if they're not doing that. I mean, it's brazen. You know, it's not, it's not just about corruption. It should go beyond party politics. That if, you, if one of your ministers has been put in the public eye because of compromising material from a private security camera... That's a really big deal if all of a sudden you're not following up on that. And, and, I, and you know, and, and that suggests it's coming from a very high, 
high place. Allow me to sound conspiratorial for a minute, Michael. I, I don't think it's the, the whistleblower thing. I mean, the, the government can afford to spend money on lawyers. I don't think that for a second. My God, look what happened with Priti Patel and bullying. Uh, I don't think that for a second, no. I think it's about the person who leaked it not getting, not having to face consequences. And I think that, look, the, the, plausible, the plausible reason why is because they were in hock with people close to the Prime Minister. Next story. A shadow cabinet member has told party members that Labour will not be supporting free social care as it would give the Tories a stick to beat Labour with. Fangham Debonair, Labour's shadow leader of the House of Commons, was speaking at a meeting in the run-up to Labour's women's conference. She was faced with party members who wanted to put forward a motion in support of free universal, universal social care provided on the model of the NHS, and she was pushing back against that proposal. So according to Disability News Service, who broke the story, Fangham Debonair told female party members that introducing free social care for disabled and older people would give the Tories a stick to beat Labour with. She apparently claimed that such a policy would cost £100 billion and would cost more than the annual budget of the NHS. She also said that right-wing newspapers would attack the policy and that it would lose Labour the next election. Now, the site reports that Labour have not denied Debonair made such comments. There are two issues, of course, with what Fangham Debonair is reported to have said. The first, um, and this is a point that the article in Disability News Service really pushed on, is that it could represent another broken promise on the part of Keir Starmer. So another U-turn from the Labour leader. Now, on this front, Starmer supporters say there was no U-turn. Free social care, free universal social care on the model of the NHS wasn't one of Starmer's 10 pledges. It also wasn't in the 2019 Labour manifesto. So in that manifesto, Labour pledged for free personal at-home care. So what that doesn't include is care that takes place in a care home, for example. However, um, and this is what the Disability News Service emphasised, during his leadership campaign, Starmer had said he supported a motion which was passed at the 2019 party conference, which called for all social care to be free. So the motion which was passed at the 2019 conference, which didn't quite make it into the manifesto, had pledged to, and I quote, make the provision of all social care free to recipients, as is the case for healthcare under the NHS. So fairly unambiguous there. Keir Starmer was asked whether he backed that motion by the Disability News Service and they report he said yes. Um, it's very believable because we know that Keir Starmer has broken many a promise which he put forward um, to the Labour members when, <laughs> when in that leadership election which he has, he has now abandoned. Um, yeah, very forthrightly. Um, now the second issue is about the content of what Fangham Debonair has said. Um, so whether or not this is a U-turn, is what she said reasonable? Is it good politics? Most importantly, is it true? So remember Debonair said that providing universal free social care to everyone who needs it would cost £100 billion per year. She also said it would cost more than the NHS. That would, you know, that, they, would, they would be quite striking um, claims if true. However, Tom Kabassi, who was chair of the IPPR think tank and a Starmer supporter, tweeted in disagreement with those claims. So he said, 
as IPPR found in 2019, making personal and nursing care free at the point of need, just like the NHS, would mean spending rising from £17 billion in 2019 to £36 billion in 2030. The increase equals 1.31% points on national insurance. It is emphatically not either £100 billion or more than we spend on the NHS. Now, however much it would cost, the NHS costs about £150 billion a year, so I'm not really sure where you got that figure from. But as you can see there, they put forward uh, a costed paper which suggested that free social care for all, that's both at home and in care homes, would cost £36 billion per year. So nothing close to the £100 billion that Fangham Debonair was speaking of. As far as I'm aware, she hasn't pointed um, any journalist to where she got that figure from. Aaron, lots of people are very annoyed at these comments, both because of the perceived U-turn and also because, I mean, they don't seem to to stand up against the facts. Do you think people are right to be to be as pissed off as they are? Yeah, I mean, look, also particularly because Thangham, it's Thangham Debonair, Michael. It's Thangham Debonair. You know, I think two weeks after the 2019 general election, she said that Ash Sarkar on, on BBC Any Questions on BBC Radio 4 should be expelled from the Labour Party. Didn't give a reason why. I mean, it doesn't bode particularly well, does it? These are people that look for that look for traitors rather than converts. That that claim has always been said about the left, but I think it really holds for the Labour right, and she's firmly on the Labour right, from what I can tell. And then, of course, you just look at her behaviour in Bristol West. You know, before becoming a, an MP, she promised the earth. She used to go on apparently Acorn demonstrations, uh, and now she can't even bring herself to you know um, advocate for 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 remotely progressive policy when it comes to renters uh, in the middle of a pandemic. Obviously, Labour have a position on that, but I, I think it's obviously significantly short of where it needs to be. So, Thangham Debonair in particular saying these things has clearly rattled a lot of people, upset a lot of people, I think justifiably. This is somebody who's got a 28,000 majority in their, in their constituency of Bristol West. Well, it's one of the safest seats that Labour has. And I think in the May local elections, uh, not all of the wards were up for grabs across the whole of the city because, you know, local elections are a bit strange like that. But Labour did phenomenally poorly in Bristol West, phenomenally poorly. And it will absolutely be a target seat for the Greens, which is an incredible thing to say because there's a 27,000 majority. I don't think they'll win it, although they could, but I think they're going to they're gonna definitely get that majority to below, I think, 5,000, uh, which is a, a remarkable thing. And it speaks to the extent to which, you know, Thangham Debonair is just not liked by locals, Labour Party members. Uh, and, you know, she, she doesn't really leave a memorable mark with the public. She's very much a kind of an archetypal Labour politician on the on the shadow front bench right now. I and mean, there's some great people on the shadow front bench, but I think she's sort of not cutting through the public and kind of disliked by her own side. Uh, and so this 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 intervention, this provocation uh, really was was more of the same. And I think it's the certainty she says things with, which are clearly wrong and unevidenced, which really gets people's back up. And you saw, you know, Tom, Tom Kabassi's response about the, you know, the costs of doing what what she says would cost 100 billion or more than the NHS. It's clearly absurd. And what I find really remarkable with these people from the Labour right is they think everybody on the left is stupid. They think that everybody on the left has no idea what they're talking about. They, 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 we're not sort of based in reality. We're not doing evidence-based policy. And then they just come up with the most fatuous, ridiculous nonsense, sort of talking about these minor tweak policies, address, addressing, so adjusting the cufflinks. 
the public doesn't like it. The left don't like it. And they're sitting there holding their balls, proverbial balls, saying, oh, why, why, why isn't this more popular? Why am I so disliked? Why in Bristol did we just lose a majority on the council? Why am I about to see Bristol West go from 27,000 majorities to potentially losing it? Well, this is why, because you're not, you're not producing thoughtful, positive policy, right? You're, you're doing nothing at all, fundamentally. We know what the Tories stand for. It's helping the rich. It's, generally speaking, reducing taxes. It's about bashing immigrants. It's about fighting the culture war. So what are you for? And I think with Thangam Debonair, she, for me, personifies that question not being answered right now by Labour. Thangam Debonair, what are you for? It turns out not very much. And so this story about uh, a care service really crystallizes that problem. So it's, it's, it's both about Thangam Debonair, but it's also so much bigger than her. She's really distilling the problem Labour have, which is an absence of vision, an absence of policy, and with an absence of policy, and this is something that Starmer and his supporters never really got, an absence of policy means an absence of political lines, which means you can't really distinguish yourself from the government. And when you can't distinguish yourself from the government, nobody's going to vote for you because you've got nothing to give them to vote for. The thing that annoys me so much about this and what I think is actually one of the worst features of Labour under Keir Starmer is that essentially what you do is you have loads of front bench politicians who their main argument they're having is with the left of the party. They're not really focusing on the Tories at all. And so what they keep doing is making right-wing arguments intentionally, it seems, moving public discourse to the right. So we've seen mm. this with Fangham Debonair before. Here she's saying, oh no, we can't do social care um, because it would be way too expensive. And then she massive, massively inflates the costs. She says it would be 100 billion when it would actually be 37 billion pounds. So she's making a right-wing argument that is based in misinformation to essentially try and argue against a, a policy from the left. And we've seen her personally do this before. So we've done videos about this before, her, her comments on rent during the pandemic. So she was arguing very strongly, oh no, we can't have landlords take any losses. And one of her arguments for that was to say, oh, well, if um, a landlord has to sell up, it will only get bought by a worse landlord. Now, that is such a false right-wing argument because there's, there's no reason why if a landlord goes out of business, that house will get bought by a worse landlord. Maybe property prices will become a bit more affordable and it will get bought by a family. Or maybe we could have active councils who recognise that, oh, there's a flood of, of housing on the market now because landlords are having a tough time. Maybe we'll buy them and turn them into social housing. No, she basically precludes all of those possibilities and says the only way that, that politics could go from here is worse. So if you want to have change, don't because the alternative is worse. Labour did actually a similar thing on corporation tax. There was an argument coming from the government this time that they might raise corporation tax. Labour starts speaking as if they've suddenly you know, discovered the Laffer curve and they're like, no, if you increase taxes, that will actually damage growth and reduce the tax take. Like, what the hell are you talking about, right? And it's because they're so terrified of taking left-wing positions that all they're constantly, the intellectual game they're playing is how can we defeat the arguments of the left? And if you've got a Labour Party where the only thing that gets them up in the morning is defeating the arguments of the left, which, by the way, they're not doing very effectively, then what is that going to do to British politics? It's just going to take it ever further to the right. And that's what we're seeing happening right now. I want to go back to you on, on that point. And I mean, do you agree the, the extent to, it's probably the most pernicious thing about the Labour Party, I think, at the moment is the extent to which they make the Tories arguments for them? Yeah. 
the whole thing about oh it's the Tory B team I mean it's not it's not even the, the Tory B team it's the sort of academy squad you know it's the, they're, they're, they're giving the foundations to ideas in real time it's not oh if the Tories lose and these guys will come in and they'll do the exact same thing no they're literally bolstering the Tories in government they're giving the sort of the, you know they're the sort of ideological ramparts the, the thing about landlords Michael I mean this is I find this unbelievable. It's a bit off topic, but I just want to talk about it quickly. I spent £85,000 in London on landlords. I gave £85,000 to landlords in my life between 19 and I think whatever, 34, whenever I left, 35, right? I gave them £85,000. Now, according to Thangham Debonair, if I hadn't done that, then there would have been no incentive for somebody to, for, for me to live. I would have been living on the streets. What the hell are you talking about? £85,000. I was paying with my partner for a one-bed flat in Hackney. I was paying three times more than my dad's mortgage for a three-bed house in Bournemouth. Oh, but nope, this all makes sense in Thangham Debonair world. Going back to the Tories, Michael, and that whole thing about, oh, if we do this, they'll bash us. Can you imagine Can you imagine the, the Tories ever saying that? Can you imagine the Tories saying, oh, look, we want to cut taxes for the rich. We want to help our mates in the city of London. Oh, we can't do that. Labour will bash us. They'd say, good. Or Boris Johnson, you know, when, when he was talking about, uh, you know, fuck business with Brexit because the Tories knew they had to deliver Brexit, otherwise they wouldn't get power. And that's what they care about. And Boris Johnson went, fuck business. And I like, compare that ballsy approach to somebody like Thangham Debonair. We can't do that. I'd love to do it. By the way, she wouldn't love to do it. She wouldn't love to do it because she's not a socialist. Their entire identity is about being nicer than the Tories, but not being socialist. And when you have this, a set of circumstances, which, which is what we presently do, which is the Tories moving left on a bunch of policies and left-wing policy actually being really popular with the public at large, the Labour right are kind of stuck because by default, they can't offer popular policies, right? Popular policies and left-wing policies have to be, have to be, just as a triangle has three sides, have to be two separate things in their in their sort of intellectual universe. That isn't the case. Public ownership of rail is popular. You know, uh, rent controls are popular. Building more social housing is popular. Uh, scrapping tuition fees is popular. All to varying extents, but they're, they're, these are all popular policies. Increasing corporation tax, increasing tax on the rich, all popular. But that can't compute for a political robot like Thangham Debatnay, not just her, many other people like her in the Parliamentary Labour Party, because, like I say, it's a fact of nature, left-wing policy and popular policy, two separate things. We'd love to do the left-wing policy, but we can't because it's not popular. And ultimately, you, you do neither. You don't do left-wing policy and you don't do popular policy. And then, you know, they get 150 seats in the next general election and they say, where did it all go wrong? It, all, it went wrong when you opened your mouth. It went wrong when you decided to, 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 to champion the most ridiculous policy, which nobody can even recognize or understand or comprehend, let alone support. That's where it went wrong. Will they learn that lesson before 2023? I mean, I, God, I hope so, Michael. We've got some news for you in a moment, which will suggest they might not. Um, first of all, a very thoughtful comment from Tom Cornford on the hashtag Tisky Sour. Far from giving the Tories a stick to beat Labour with, free social care could easily fracture their coalition of older homeowners and offer those voters both security in old age and a stake in social justice. Oh, and it's also the right thing to do. That is the kind of thinking we need at the top of the Labour Party, right? Instead, Labour is saying, oh, are you worried about care being too expensive when you're older? Um, well, nothing we can do about it. It would just be too expensive, right? They're saying, would, would, you, would you like a better future for yourself? Eh, sorry, too difficult. What's the point in your existence if that's all, all, all the only arguments you make? Right, we're going to go straight on to our next Labour story. After securing only 622 votes in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, Keir Starmer responded with a clear out of his top team. 
his director of communications, chief of staff and political director have all been sacked in the past seven days. We're now getting the first signals as to what kind of people will be replacing them. Matthew Doyle has been hired as interim comms director for the Labour leader. Doyle was head of press and broadcasting for Labour between 1998 and 2005, and then went on to serve as Tony Blair's special advisor when he was prime minister, and then political director of his office for five years once Blair left Downing Street. He was working with all sorts of unsavoury people in that time period. Um, he also, Doyle also worked on Liz Kendall's failed leadership bid in 2015. And as is a common theme in Starmer's circle, Doyle was an ardent backer of a second EU referendum. Here he is in January 2019, encouraging Jeremy Corbyn to back a so-called people's vote. When uh, when Jeremy Corbyn picks up his uh, Islington Tribune this morning, he'll see a rather impassioned plea from the next generation of Labour activists and Labour voters who make the point quite rightly that I think that the only way out of this is for us to have a second referendum. There's an open letter on the uh, inside which essentially sets out the challenge that says that basically all the issues that Jeremy Corbyn speaks about None of them will be made better by Britain leaving the European Union and that ultimately there is no deal that is better than the deal we have at the moment, which is why there needs to be a final say referendum. So Doyle has been hired, I suppose, to try and stem the tide away from Labour in the Red Wall. He was um, one of the big pushers of the policy that completely condemned Labour in all of those parts of Britain. Um, you saw him make all of those, those arguments just sound so, so tired now as well, don't they? Aaron, this is supposed to be a temporary hire. He's only supposed to be interim director of communications while they advertise for a bigger hitter. Does that mean we can't infer much from his appointment or, or what do you make of it? Quickly, Michael, that, that Sky clip, you, if you want to talk about how, you know, there's an element of kind of, we're a managed democracy when it comes to the media. You have Adam Bolton on one side. His wife is Angie Hunter. She worked for Tony Blair. He's very close to all the Blairites. You've got Matthew Doyle, who worked for David Blunkett, close to Peter Mandelson, worked for Liz Kendall. And between them, you've got the lady who subsequently became the head of PR for the Sun newspaper. Right? So, and these these were the people saying, oh, what's in the best interest of Jeremy Corbyn if he wants to win the next general election? We're being honest, by the way. Come on. Wow. I mean, that is just a, that is just the distillation of all that's so dysfunctional and toxic in our media. That was not about having a conversation about the, the actors and the ideas and the, and the, and the policies. That was, that was an act of political communication. That is where you find a weakness in your enemy and you keep on going and you expose and you dig and you, you get in there. Right. That's not journalism. That's political communications. That's what Fox News does. And it was happening there. Matthew Doyle, in terms of who he is, people are saying, oh, well, it'll be like the Blair years. He was there in the good old days. Matthew Doyle was working for David Blunkett, I think, in 2006. That was not the good old days. <laughs> that was when people were saying that Tony Blair has to resign every other week. Right. That was the tail end of Blairism. That was when the thing was in free fall. Gordon Brown comes in, ratings go up again, but it, it didn't last very long. Let's remember, 2010, Labour got 28.5% of the popular vote, much lower than 2019. People don't like to talk about it. So the idea that this guy's going to come in and change things, uh, look, my view is, and I've been told this by a few sources, quite senior sources in the Labour Party, he's there as Mandelson's man. Nothing more, nothing less. And it's about the Labour right, particularly Labour first, the securing control of the leader's office, particularly after Batley and Spent, because when Labour lose, if they lose, it seems quite likely right now, 
things can change. There's a week left. If and when Labour lose, there's going to be an escalation by the leader's office to impose political control. Either that has to happen or Keir Starmer has to resign, right? We'll talk about that more in a, in a bit. Or he thinks he can just sort of shamble on zombie-like to conference. I don't think that's plausible. So that's how we should look at it, Michael. This is not about recruiting the best to upgrade Labour's game. It's about having a fixer in there who can help them do the dirty while they shaft the left and focus on the one thing, focus on the one thing that Starmer said he wouldn't be about. He said, I'm a unifier. We're about winning national elections. That was never the plan. It was about destroying the left and ignoring national elections for as long as that took. The point is they never thought it would get this bad this quickly. You're, you're, you're running against the government and you lose two by-elections out of three to them where you previously held the seat. That hasn't happened in a very, very long time, and I don't think Starmer can survive it. So this guy is coming in here almost like, you know, he's like the wolf in Pulp, pulp Fiction. Who, who can we get in there to sort of, to, 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 to you know, give loads of front, have loads of marzi, have the temerity to stand up and people say he needs to resign, and to do a job over several weeks, several months, whereby the right can take further control of the party, even though we've got a lame duck leader. That's why he's there. We are less than a week away from the Batley and Spen by-election, and the contest seems to be getting increasingly dirty. On the one hand, as we've talked about on previous shows, outriders for the Labour right are getting ready to blame a Labour defeat on supposedly racist and homophobic Muslim voters. Those are lines coming from both Labour sources and um, centrist journalists. At the same time, there are some genuinely unsavoury activists piling into the constituency. Earlier today, a video from Byline TV showed Labour candidate Kim Leadbeater getting confronted in the street. Yeah, this is where I live. This is my community. Don't come here and shout at me in the street. The Muslim community of Batley and Spen deserve better than this. They deserve better than this. I'm asking you, are you going to support Muslim parents? Do not walk away because you don't want their children to learn about LGBT indoctrination. Are you supporting us? Kim, I'm here. Answer the question. Why are you running? Kim, I'm here to talk to you. Are you going to support Muslim parents who don't want their children to learn about LGBT So speak to this gentleman. We are going to chase Labour at every step. Now, that was a really, really horrible video on every account. You've got to remember Kim Ledbetter, her sister, five years ago, was killed in the constituency by a far-right activist. So to have a group of men aggressively haranguing her in the street is really, really horrible to watch. At the same time, some important background there is that Kim Ledbetter is gay. And so you've got these people shouting at her, are you going to be backing LGBT education in schools? Um, really, really, well, I mean, obviously it's outrightly homophobic, but also she's clearly being targeted because of her own um, sexuality. So absolutely appalling, disgusting. It's also important to note that the man harassing Kim Ledbetter isn't in any way representative of the Muslim community in Batley. In fact, he's not even from Batley. Um, so he's called Shaquille Afzar, um, and he was one of the leaders of the anti-LGBT protests in Birmingham in 2019. There's actually an interview um, with Owen Jones of him from those protests back then. So he is not a representative constituent. He's a, he's a reactionary and a trouble maker. Now, the original tweet from Byline TV identified Afsar as a George Galloway supporter. It's obviously George Galloway who's who's standing against Labour, ostensibly to try and get rid of Keir Starmer. Now, that was also repeated by Keir Starmer, by the way, that this was a George Galloway um, supporter or part of his campaign. Now, that has been pushed back against by 
Galloway. So he tweeted today, the extremist who harassed my Labour opponent today has, I'm told, previously been thrown out by my security from one of my public meetings. He is a provocateur. However, um, despite that attempt by George Galloway to distance himself from this activist or this provocateur speaking to Byline TV after that incident, Kim Ledbetter told them or said that Galloway had in fact been laughing on the other side of the road. Sadly, over the last sort of 24 hours, things have become slightly less civil. Um, it's been um, a tough day today, I have to be honest. We were out campaigning outside one of the local mosques and suddenly, and then suddenly there was a big group of mainly men, I would say, who started shouting at me in the street, trying to say they were asking me questions, but they certainly weren't giving me any chance to answer any questions. Um, some of them not local. Um, George Galloway was at the other side of the street laughing and I was extremely intimidated. And this is not good for our area. This is not what people need. I don't need this. My family don't need this. And our community doesn't need it. That is not how politics should be done. We need debate. We need discussion. We probably need disagreement. But we don't need abuse and we don't need intimidation. Um, but I am worried about some of the um, more sinister elements of um, other people's campaigns, shall we say. And it's very upsetting to think that other people think they've got a right to come in and cause disruption and sow division. It's the last thing this community needs. So what we're seeing here is, on the one hand, as we've talked about on previous shows, an obvious attempt by Labour outriders to tar the general populace of, of Batley as reactionaries. But we're also seeing, I mean, as you saw from that clip and that response from Kid Ledbeater, that this is actually becoming quite a an unpleasant by-election in in many ways. That scene, I think everyone who, who watches this show will agree, was was appalling. How this fits into a broader narrative about the by-election is a difficult question, though. Lots of people saying different things online, lots of people who've been on the ground. And here I'm going to defer to you, Aaron, because you were there last week. And in fact, you have a feature on the by-election published mm -hmm. today on navaramedia.com. Yep. So on the one hand, you've got obviously the, the backstory about, you know, the school teacher in Batley. I'm surprised in a way it didn't happen sooner, even if Galloway didn't stand. You know, you've had issues with the uh, the Reform Party, Lawrence Fox trying to get up there. I believe we're talking on Friday night. I believe Tommy Robinson's going there tomorrow. Um, there is a there's a large minority population there, large Muslim population, not just Kashmiri, also Gujarati. Uh, and so it could be something of a flashpoint for the far right. You had BMP councillors in the area, I think, 15 years ago. Uh, so it's 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 going to be a very volatile situation, of course, the, the tragic death of Do uh, Joe Cox in, in 2016. So I should say, not death, the murder of Joe Cox by a fascist. So it, it, it was always going to be quite a, a potentially, you know, politically volatile situation, especially, like I say, with the teacher more recently. My experience when I was in Batley and Spen was really good. The people I met were really nice, and that included uh, people who were going to vote Labour, uh, people that were going to vote for Galloway. I even met some ex-Labour members who were going to vote for Galloway, under no illusions, I should add. And I, I tried to put that as, as best as possible down on the piece uh, because I think a lot of the the shibboleths and the kind of the assumptions that are made uh, around this are really they're very frustrating. You know, one is, oh, why don't local people understand that Galloway is a charlatan, he's in it for himself? Many of them think that, and they're still going to vote for him. 
it's all about Palestine. Yes, Palestine is one issue, but this is also a place which has seen its magistrate close, its prison close, seen its A&E downgraded. The minute you get into Batley as a town, Batley and Spen is several towns in one village. The minute you get into Batley as a town, you realize the roads are really shocking. And it's like all of those really important things for those people, which really matter, are completely sidelined by the national media because they want to talk about the personalities. And people have pushed back on my piece about Galloway saying, why don't you say that he's X, Y, Z? You want to Google George Galloway? You can see a thousand and one stories talking about that. I want to talk about people in Batley and Spen, what they care about, why they're voting the way they're going to vote. Because realistically, Galloway may come second, he may come third. I think it's very unlikely he's going to win, but he's going to get a lot of votes. And we have to examine why. That's not because all the people voting for him are stupid or racist. Far from it. And it's a very broad range of people that I spoke to, by the way, that will be voting for him. That's a really important story. And fundamentally, I think, if you can understand that story, you can get a really good grasp on why Labour has such big problems right now. Really big problems. And they're not going away, by the way. They're going to intensify. They're going to get much, much worse. Of course, solidarity with Kim Ledbetter today. Disgusting scenes. And I think they shouldn't just be condemned. I think George Galloway needs to make quite substantive measures and moves to stop people doing that and really trying to discredit it, you know, in a really, you know, in a really strong and affirmative way. But that's not, that is not the story. That is not the story. The story is about left behind places in this country. And it's, you know, it's, it's mocked by the media. Oh, left behind because Nigel Farage is the champion of left behind. No, there are some places which really are left behind. The number of people who are economically inactive in Batley is really high. The high street is, 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 has been totally smashed. People I spoke to are going to vote Galloway. Said so 15 years ago, the high street was lovely, and now it's all just takeaways, right? As much as people like a takeaway, you need more on the high street. Those are the things that the media should be talking about, but they're not. There's been that piece. There was Owen Jones's brilliant video. People should watch that. And there was a great piece by Maya uh, in The Guardian, a piece of reportage. But other than that, you're, you're basically, and sorry, I should say Lewis Goodall at, at Newsnight too. Other than that, you're not seeing the, the sort of the journalistic industry, the media are not covering what matters to these people. And I think that explains a great deal uh, about the sort of levels of political apathy we see in this country. You say that George Galloway should come out strongly against this and try and stop it happening. I mean, in a way, I, I think, you know, it, it's hard for any leader to stop anyone doing something in their name. I mean, in this case, it's not even clear, it, you know, that that harassment was done in his name. At the same time, we do know that... it wasn't. Yeah, at the same time, though, we do know that George Galloway, as well as running on a sort of like, I'm pro-Palestine and anti-Labour, does run on nowadays a sort of social socially conservative platform where he's always railing against woke culture and gender identity etc cetera, etc cetera. so it, it does seem to me that whilst he is happy to distance himself from this person who's harassed kim ledbeater i think he seems quite reluctant to actually speak out in in favor of gay rights because he thinks that that might lose him some votes and that he is leaning into as well as talking about you know, important issues like Palestine and Kashmir, he is trying to make sure that he doesn't put off anyone who is socially conservative and homophobic because he is desperate to court their their votes. Do, do you think that's an unfair characterization of 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 of, of the, the strategy he's pursuing here? I think it's, it's it's plausible. I think it's an important point to make, Michael. <clears throat> I mean, do I think that George Galloway has a problem with gay people? I don't think there's any I mean his stuff on trans rights, I think that's a different conversation. Uh in terms of, you know, Gay people, I, I, I've not seen the evidence. I mean, if people can submit that. And um, I think his personal position on trans rights is somewhat different. Uh, and obviously, I don't agree with it. 
But what you're saying about he would never call these things out, he would never sort of publicly admonish anybody who, who, who may be a social conservative, I think that's correct. But, you know, he's not unique in doing that. You know, there are many, many conservative MPs, and I think actually many Labour MPs who, who lean into those same things. Uh, but because he's a one-man band, it's a lot easier to pick out. You know, Brexit was a classic example. You know, I don't think Brexit was racist, but clearly there were many, many racist arguments, anti-migration arguments that went into the Brexit debate. And many MPs knew that many people who vote for them in their constituency, Labour MPs, knew that many people in their constituencies would no longer vote Labour if they say, actually, immigration is good. You know, so uh, I, I think that's a sort of tendentious argument in so much as that applies to all politicians. Now, the question is, how destructive is it? Well, I think in this immediate context, it's a seat where an MP was murdered. It's where a, a woman is being confronted by a group of men. I think in that particular context, yes, you, you need to have a really strong, you know, sort of questioning of, of, of his views on these things. But I think it is unfair to say he, he uniquely as a politician um, sort of gives, gives these things carte blanche because I think, I think lots of politicians do that. I think that's, that's a lot of politics, Michael. I don't agree with it. You know, again, it's one of those things where on Navarro we talk about these things. I obviously don't agree with it. I'm a passionate defender and supporter of LGBTQ rights. If, if, if there was a, a political party that was opposed to it anyway, I wouldn't vote for it. But I, I do think it's unfair and inaccurate to say that all parties don't participate in what you're talking about to a degree. Um, I don't think it's exceptional, but I do, I do think that it's grotesque, I suppose, to be fighting a campaign against a gay woman who's being harassed essentially for being gay and not saying anything which suggests you're supportive of LGBT rights because you're courting people who don't believe in LGBT rights. I think, you know, that there is something quite morally disgusting about that, I suppose. And I'm not saying that's completely exceptional. I mean, I know there are loads of politicians who do this about all sorts of issues. I mean, we've talked about it a lot on this show when it comes to um, gypsy travellers, for example. But just, I mean, I think it is worth, you know, being clear here that Galloway's refusal to come out in favour of gay rights is a real, real, real problem. No, no. I mean, I said that at the start. I said I, I said he should have a really strong position on this. He should he should condemn it in the strongest possible terms, and he should say he should say explicitly solidarity with Kim Ledbetter. This is not in my name, and and take concrete steps to so stop it. I mean, when I was in when I was in Batley and Spen and talking to various people around his campaign, they were aware that these elements do exist and that they would come in. Uh, and, and these are two separate questions in a way, Michael. So on the one hand. This gentleman is not part of the campaign. The people that were intimidating her are not part of the campaign. But then you're separately saying, because of George Galloway's, and that's one, let's put that into a discrete box for a second. And there's a separate point. You're saying, well, George Galloway needs to publicly state his support for LGBT rights because of this first thing. I mean, they're two, they're two separate questions. The first thing is reprehensible. The first thing is reprehensible. The second thing I, I don't agree with, I don't think it's progressive. I don't think a socialist has that position. But I, I do think they're different. I think the first thing kind of makes you a monster, right? The second thing, I think, again, we're saying lots of politicians behave like this. If I was in Batley and Spen, people say, oh, you support Galloway. If I was in Batley and Spen, my, my preferred candidate would be Kim Ledbetter. I think a lot of people feel like this. Kim Ledbetter, for me, is the best candidate, but a lot of people also look at Kirkley's council, which is Labour, was Labour run. They look at Keir Starmer and they say, I like Kim Ledbetter, but not as a Labour candidate. So if I lived there personally, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I probably wouldn't vote. I probably wouldn't vote. Or I'd vote Kim Ledbetter. But and the, 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 what's really telling here, Michael, is that 
The Labour aren't going after the Tories. They're going after George Galloway. The reason being, I think, because the Tories have got this sewn up already, and it's about coming second. That's my suspicion, and that's the kind of that's the kind of the, the subtext of the attacks on Galloway. Yes, of course, it's justified because of something something appalling and abhorrent happened today. But I, I think we're going to see more of this over the coming days because the enemy for for Labour now in Batley and Spen is not the Tories. It's George Galloway. That tells you again something quite big about the kind of erosion of of the Red Wall. And Batley and Spen is not a typical Red Bull seat. It was conservative till 1997, has a large Muslim population. But, you know, I mean, that is really telling, Michael. If, if you said four months ago, Labour will lose Hartlepool by 7,000 votes and they'll be targeting George Galloway in the Batley and Spen by-election, your jaw would have dropped and you would have said, wow, we, Keir Stummer can not survive that. The question is, can he? Very interesting thoughts. I'm glad you you went up to Batley so that we can get your your insights on this. And we, of course, will be talking a lot about the Batley and Spen by-election. It happens next Thursday. It's going to be a huge moment for for Labour, whatever the result, potentially for Britain. Um, We are going to leave it there. Aaron Bastani, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, being joined by you this Friday night. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.